Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, sitting here with Aaron Cameron at the Real Trends Conference. Our guest today is Susan Rosen, who's a partner at Gowling WLG. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, how are you? So Susan is fresh off of a, a panel. She just uh, moderated the the cannabis panel. So we're going to get into that in a little bit. But first, we're going to start, of course, with you know Susan's background and exactly what Gowling does. I'm sure anybody in real estate has probably interacted with Gowling at some point, but we know we'd love to hear about it. Sure. Gowling WLG, or actually Gowling WLG Canada, LLP. And about three years ago, we merged with a firm in Europe and they were uh, RAG, Lawrence Graham. And now we collectively have 18 offices in uh, right across the, the world. And it's definitely Gowling's is uh, on, on the given day, either the largest, the second largest law firm in Canada. So we offices are- Offices across the country, every, right, every yeah, major like urban Van- Vancouver to Montreal, we're uh, right across the country. So we're a full service firm and highly integrated in terms of how we work. We tend to organize ourselves actually not in the old days, like uh, real estate and banking and litigation, but we actually organize ourselves on client team basis. So that we can have a direct connection and relationship with our clients. And so we really encourage our lawyers, our other professionals, our clerks, and our staff to get to know our clients and be on a client team and um, then provide the service in their given area to that client team. Is that typical or are most uh, firms still structured in silos? I think Gowings is somewhat unique. We organized ourselves about 15 years ago on on this basis. Um, I think there are a few firms who actually are are have approached it, man, organizing their firms on this approach. The benefit we feel is is that if you invest in actually creating a client team and getting to know the client, and so you're you're getting to know the client's industry, the specific people you're working with. We're ensuring that we're having the same lawyers continuously work with that client and develop relationships at all levels with that client, and so we essentially are trying to grow with our clients and and I was so what we feel is, is that we're actually business advisors business legal advisors and providing being trusted advisors and and providing that additional element of advice and quite frankly personally it's much more fun because you feel like you're on the team. Uh, I know we are going to talk about my past or my how I got to Gallings, but I was previously in-house counsel with Shell Canada. And that was my introduction in learning very much about being part of the client. And so even when I was in-house at Shell, we would have a client and our client was maybe the automotive group or the, you know, the upstream or the downstream. And so we then as internal counsel, had to get to know all about that business. Because oftentimes, as a lawyer, a client will come to you with a question. But that, the question they ask you is only part of the information they really want to know and that they need to know. It's tough, and, to, tough to give an answer or educated answer in isolation of all, yeah. the, all the information. It's incredible how many times I'm asked a question in the middle and I have this one client and she, she's brilliant and we've worked together for many years and I always say, well, I'm going to have to ask you a couple of questions now. She's like, oh, I hate when you do that. But I said, well, listen, you know, I can give you a quick answer, but that might not be the right answer and I don't want to spend an inordinate amount of time, but I need to give you a really good 
answer and it really depends on on maybe the circumstances or factors i run the operations at first national our law our lawyers are constantly sort of frustrated at times when people show up they got this 40 page document they go are you okay with this sentence right and it's like well okay hold on like i can't really give you an opinion on the validity of that sentence without knowing what it is what is this document what's the deal like it, it really is hard to do that right Absolutely. And, and I think that that's essentially about knowing the, the client and being part of a client team. So advice to even let's just talk about banks, for example, uh, giving advice to one bank may not be the same advice you give to a different bank because they have different pressure points. They have different interests. They might be in a different sector. And so you really have to understand you know, what motivates those clients. Recently, I had a client come in on a trademark issue. And while I consider myself a dirt lawyer, which means I do buying, selling, financing, and leasing of real estate, I am the principal business lawyer for this client, and I'm essentially the client team leader. And I know everything about this client. I know they're in the pizza business. I know about even like how their boxes are made and how their trademarks are and all the ingredients that go into it and how they started and you know what's a good sales day and what's a bad sales day and what are the products they, they want to add in and expand their, mar- their menu and what they don't want to. And so when the client came to me with a trademark question, I was so intimately involved in that client and I understood that for that client, Twitter and Instagram were important elements of where potentially their trademark was being violated. And it wasn't the traditional, just a piece of paper or what does the mark look like, but how does, how do Twitter and how to, how to Instagram affect the advertising in their name? And so again, that's just an example of really being embracing your client relationship. It gets exciting. I like it. That's yeah, really interesting. I, you know, I'll guess, I guess, like I don't really, really know, but I would suspect that a lot of businesses are, are slowly transforming their old structures where you do have these silos and that client service is so imperative, especially in such competitive markets. I mean, whether it's legal or, or certainly in financing, certainly in lending, we've taken that approach, right? Where it's really all about the client and the client's needs and becoming a trusted advisor. I mean, that's really become part of our slogan at First National as well. It's the same kind of concept. You can only really provide you know, premium value service without understanding what that client needs. So, Actually, um, just yesterday, we're doing a updating precedent documentation for one particular lending client, and there was a sort of a set of documents we were asked to update, and it's not technically in my area, but I obviously got the right lawyer at our firm that could ha- help with those documents. And then I said to the client that I wanted to be continued to be copied on everything I wouldn't bill and dock it, but that it was important for me to see what was being changed, the issues that were being raised, because I wanted to ensure that we had continuity with the other documents that we were changing and 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 the other press the way we were managing the development of the other other precedents. So to your point, it's so important. And especially with big companies, you know, such as yours or organizations, you know, who's sort of watching the whole thing. And there's a lot of gaps and crevices if you don't have someone who's taking that responsibility and lead in terms of yeah, managing I, that. I, we're going down a bit of a tangent, but let's keep going. I, and I, it's interesting the way that you're describing your approach to business, quite frankly, mirrors the way that First National approaches their clients. And we, I often get use the the legal the legal world as an example about you know because we lenders get treated like a commodity at times. What's your lowest interest rate? What's your what's the highest loan to value? Like just give me, let me compare apples to apples. And I say, well, sometimes you need to pay up for service. Like lawyers, you don't treat lawyers like commodities because if you if you go to the very bottom 
bottom denominator on a, on legal fees, you're going to end up getting probably poor service and poor opinions and it poor puts results you, ultimately. Poor results yeah. and it puts you at risk. So you have to pay people and people in their brains for whatever reason. And maybe it's because lots of lawyers have used this, but people in their brains have no problem paying up for legal advice for legal opinions because maybe they get better services. Anyway, it's just interesting that the you two just, our two industries yeah. kind of mirror each other in certain ways about about, about providing value, right? Hundred percent. And I think in the lending industry, I, I see this all the time because we are, I personally act for lenders and for borrowers. And I see, you know, one of my clients in particular who's a borrower and he's had good relationships and bad relationships with certain some of the lenders he's been involved in and with. And I think that continuity of having somebody who's principally responsible for his lending portfolio is critical. Someone who actually understands his business and, uh, you know, someone who's prepared to go and kick the tires and literally drive around. He happens to be in real estate developer, more on the retail side. And, you know, and see what he's buying, why he's buying it, what areas he's buying it in. It helps that that lender then prepare and complete the credit that is then submitted to the credit committee. And to the extent that there's any questions or issues, that lender is more able, more quickly to actually answer and help the process. And also, you know, just the responsiveness and that sort of thing, I think has been, it's so incredible to see the difference between someone who does it well and somebody who doesn't do it well. Yeah. So the conclusion is that lawyers and lenders are a lot alike. There you go. (laughs) They both like podcasts, apparently. (laughs) So we're going backwards, but we now know where you work and what you do, but why don't we go back to how you got here? Okay. So my father was a real estate broker and um, he had his own firm and he was also a director and then the president of the Toronto Real Estate Board. And all of my parents, family, friends are in real estate. And so real estate was just sort of a natural thing. It was when I was a kid, I used to go with my, my dad to subdivisions and much of my mother's chagrin and be walking up those, you know, ladders up to the second floor and stuff and, and wearing my rubber boots into the mud. And I loved it. It was great. And uh, I was always interested in real estate. So when literal I- Literal boots on the ground. Literal, <laughs> literal boots on the ground. And so when I- Started articling. I articled at um, a real estate boutique, and then I um, I started my career with Goodman and Carr. Who why, why law? Can I just stop you there? Yeah, why not uh, brokerage? Like uh, yeah, yeah, or or any other? Why not? Why not lending? Yeah, <laughs> yes, that's good. That's a good point. Um, well, I guess people said I was really good arguer, hmm. but so it was just natural, kind of just where you ended up going. I just right? always no, wanted no... to be a lawyer. Actually, no, for I always wanted to be a lawyer. There was just something about maybe I, I keep focusing on argument, but that's not what it is because I, I Deba- now have a debate. Is that a better yeah, word? I, well, actually, I always call myself a lover, not a fighter, because I'm a, I'm a solicitor, not a barrister, and my job as a good lawyer is just to find a path to the deal, and oftentimes. You know, it's particularly in leasing, but I do buying, selling, and lending as well. But particularly in leasing, it's a relationship you're developing. And so while you have to be very ardent to ensure that you protect your clients to best interests, you have to also recognize that you're that there's an ongoing relationship that has to be established. And so it's how to articulate and advocate for your client to the best of your abilities and yet make sure that there's you're ma- managing that relationship. And so I, I really like this the psychology and the complexity of debate, of negotiating, of, of argument in that sense. And so, um, I don't know, I, there was something about me that I always wanted to be a lawyer. So what is the difference between a barrister and a solicitor specifically then? Well, he's asking because he doesn't know. I don't yeah. know. Well, technically, tec- <laughs> I don't know either, to be tec- fair. Technically in Canada or in Ontario, you actually are called to the bar and you are a barrister and a solicitor, which 
mean, a solicitor is a essentially a corporate lawyer and a barrister or somebody who goes to court and wears robes and that sort of thing. So technically I could go and wear robes and speak to the court, but what you find certainly in larger firms and even smaller firms is that people tend to, you know, take a path because you have to develop such, you know, sophisticated skills in order to be good and facilitate either one. In England, however, you either are a barrister or you are a solicitor and there's a difference. And it's funny that you say what's the difference is because what I find as being a client team leader as I am at Gowling's and a trusted advisor that I'm often asked to essentially manage the litigation process. So while I don't actually go to court, I'm involved in the strategic component of litigation, of reviewing the documentation, of assisting the client in um, negotiating sort of their way through that whole process, but I don't go to court. So jump back into your timeline then. So you decided early on then that you were not interested in going to court on a regular basis. Yeah, you know, I when I was articling, I uh, I represented this little old lady, and she was it was funny. She she got caught for uh, careless driving, and I I went to court as an articling student. I did absolutely horrible job, and I remember when I finished, I just couldn't even look at the judge because I just thought, oh my god, like I I did such a bad job, and I'm sure I lost. And he when he gave his decision, he started, well, you know, you did you know bump into the guy and. <laughs> You know, and but at the end he said he will let her off, and I was shocked. As I think more the the crown was even more shocked than I was that I had actually won. And she sent me flowers, and she's thrilled. And I realized that that was probably the one and only win I'd ever get. So I probably had, a, you know, quit while you're ahead, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yes, cool. good for her. So where were we, where were we in the timeline? So you're done the articling, and then where was so the So I went to Goodman step? and Carr, and I was first year associate, and I started in uh, 1989, which um, at the time was the boom of real estate. Uh, real estate was absolutely out of control, and I was very fortunate in that I was literally doing like multi million dollar deals on my own, which is also scary and, and fearful because people were letting me do multi million dollar deals on my own. It was that busy. I had wasn't so much my mentor, but it was, uh, and something maybe we'll talk about is is that I I found mentors. I found people that would help me and that I looked up to and that um, could help me in developing my skill set. And that's something I actually have done throughout my career. And I advise, I mentor other young people to do that your mentors aren't necessarily the ones that people give you or are selected for you through your organization or your corporation or your law firm, but they're people who you you look up to or you see that are doing whatever it is you want to do, whether it's in business and life and family that you'd like to be like, and you actively have to go after those people. So I found some great, a couple of great mentors and they helped me through. And um, then all of a sudden the, the economy crashed and the recession came. And essentially, if you're a real young real estate lawyer or even an old real estate lawyer, you're selling shoes, you're out of the business. And I was, uh, I got some great recommendations from the partners at my firm and a, a position happened to open up at Shell Canada and they were buying and they were essentially land banking when everybody else was selling because they had lots of money and they were also selling some of their assets as well. And so... 
I literally went right into that position and it was great for me because I'm a transactional lawyer. Everything from negotiating the agreement of person sale to facilitating all the due diligence and completing the transaction, reporting on it. And um, it was an amazing opportunity. Plus, uh, Shell owned a lot of real estate which they leased to a number of parties, lots of tenants. And so there was that component. And then the part that was really amazing was the fact that, of course, any gas station, you'll put a match and it'll blow up, right? So I learned a lot about environmental law and um, worked and um, dealt with hydrogeologists, environmental engineers, and developed an amazing knowledge base uh, within a fairly short period of time. And then I was on contract with Shell for a couple of years. And then the economy started coming out. It was 94. And everybody was looking for junior real estate lawyers. And of course, there were none because they were selling shoes. And then all of a sudden, I was a hot commodity. And I had an opportunity. I was I interviewed with Oslers, McCarthy's, and Gowlings. And what was interesting is I was actually interviewing them. And uh, for me, it was really important that I went to a firm that had a, a broad platform that acted for lenders and not just borrowers because it's generally better in insolvency when you're acting for the lender. <laughs> and also that had a what I look perceived as a very stable business platform on which the business was the business of the practice of law was being operated because we are a business after all and many law firms are not run like a business. And I decided that Gallings was the place that I wanted to go. And so that's how I came to Gallings. And that was ninety three, ninety four. You mentioned some mentors that helped you in real estate, but do you mentor others? Do you do you pay it forward? One hundred and fifty percent, absolutely. Actually, I really enjoy it to participate in the growth of someone. Both, it, it generally, it's not just them on a business level, but it's usually on a personal level as well, because that's really what true mentoring is. At Gallings, we have a uh, organization internally, and we call it Grow. And it's we do events for our women, the women lawyers and and our client, our female clients. And we also do some events which are just for the female lawyers at Gallings, both associates, some um, clerks and partners. And it was really interesting. We we had this twice I've been on panels at, at our firm through Grow. And it was one of the panels I was on was there were six lawyers and they asked a lot of questions like, how did you get into law? And what's your experience been as a female lawyer? And, um, you know, any words of wisdom and that sort of thing. And, and it was really interesting, even though I was on the panel, I was listening to everybody and it was really interesting seeing that everybody's path was different and unique. Everybody had different challenges. There were people who were older than me and, and their maternity leaves were like two days or two weeks. And there was um, one person who was younger than me and her maternity leave was six months and now you typically see a year. And it was just really interesting to listen to that. And so, yes, so I, I mentor personally both uh, on a sort of more not global, so to say, but a larger level in terms of on a firm basis. And also, I think the uh, people I, I meet in my practice, both at Gallings and also some of my clients as well. So given that you have a lot of experience in, in the industry and at your seniority level, there might not be a lot of uh, women in the mentorship role. Do you find there's big value for people who are just beginning their careers who 
who are women trying to get into real estate? Absolutely. I think it's really important for women in our industry to support and mentor each other. I would like to mention there's an organization called Crew, which is um, Commercial Real Estate Women, and it's a it's essentially a networking and a mentorship organization. There's Toronto Crew, there's Vancouver Crew, and there's Crew um, all around um, actually North America, and I believe it's also in Europe. And um, it's a great organization that helps women in real estate help each other. And they, I was a couple of years ago, I was at one of their conferences, and they had the, all of these awards of women who helped each other in terms of developing business, um, new ventures, and a variety of different. Uh, other awards and it was really inspiring and then they also had a they have a fund that they support and I think the charity is women and children and women and girls that's what it is and they raise money and and a big part of it is also mentoring there and then also at my firm we have a, a mentoring system and we have a organization called grow and we have events both for our female lawyers and their female clients uh, to connect and so that we because I mean I guess I think guys connect with guys on a certain level women connect with women on a certain level and and it's just a really nice opportunity and we also have grow events that are strictly our our internal where we have female partners and associates who connect and and I've been involved and have uh, spoken on a couple of those panels and one of those panels was interesting in that there were uh, people who were older than me and and where they had you know taken a two-week uh, maternity leave and then it was one person who was younger than me and she had taken a six month uh, maternity leave and now typically you see a one year maternity leave and it was very interesting or, or even 18 months now I think they're, they're, is it? There longer, you go. Yeah. so it was very interesting like just the pressures that each of them felt through through the process and what it was like to actually take the time the decision how much time they took coming back into the practice how did they develop their practice how were they received how did they sort of regain their position in the firm and how were, how were they supported or how could they be better supported so I think mentoring is is critical to the success of women and quite frankly success of anyone in, in business Business. So if we fast forward through a couple of decades of, of uh, law, how did you end up on a cannabis panel today to discuss uh, the, the changing world of our real estate world? Well, of course, cannabis is really relevant and important right now. And uh, both in, in my uh, lending practice and in my leasing practice, I've been involved in the cannabis industry. And at Gowings, we have a very large cannabis group, cannabis sector. So I have a fair bit of experience on the lending side in terms of clients who lend to parties who facilitate or are applying for licenses and receiving licenses. And on the leasing side, I have clients who lease, uh, previously were leasing to, I guess, cannabis operators who weren't necessarily licensed. And then when the the legislation changed and it was a, a came out that there were going to be licenses that were going to be allocated. It was the, as one of the topics that was in our panel is, is that there was essentially a frenzy by all the, the tenants to secure space. And there was an incredible response by all the landlords to say, sure, we'll lease to you, but you don't have a license. We don't know who you are. You're a new business. So these are all the incredible uh, responsibilities and obligations we want from you to actually lease space. And that was one of the things we talked about on the cannabis panel that uh, the landlords were asking for and are still asking for like six months uh, prepaid rent, security deposits, termination deposits, liquidated damages. And some of them were even asking for shares in uh, percentage rent if they, they were successful. Uh, yeah, because for context, they're still in the middle of this, what are they, they're doing 
licensing, uh, licensing, which which is through a um, the word lottery just, system. Yeah, thank you. The word was just gave me through a lottery system. How frequent are they doing those lottery draws? Well, they just literally did one, and it was supposed it was twenty five, and then um, apparently eight were allocated for a certain group, and of the the remainder that were allocated, there's a requirement by the 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 recipients of the licenses to within a, sh- a relatively short period of time provide um, confirmation to the um, Liquor and Gaming Commission that they had complied with all the requirements and apparently 11 of those potential licensees were not unable to prove that information, provide that information, and, and uh, so their licenses were withdrawn and now there's a case, it's, the action is actually currently ongoing because they don't want to lose their licenses but they weren't, they didn't satisfy the requirements and so it's now they've pulled those 25 and everything's on hold. So it's really quite interesting. And, and, and I mean, going back to what you were talking about before, one of the qualifications in order to receive the license and to qualify for the, for the lottery is to have a space for have a lease signed up and ready to go. So you could have these people that are in this rotation for what, a couple of years, presumably, where they've got this space, they've got at least, they've got landlords that they're supposed to be keeping content and satisfied. So have you, I mean, I guess we don't know yes, how that plays out, but it's really kind of it's a curious situation that the government's kind of created. It, and it's, it's almost untenable, I mean, and that is why they've had to provide these, you know, significant deposits, not first and last, but like six months or eight months or a year. And what they've had to, also one of the things we talked about in our panel, somebody was asking, what if somebody is, doesn't necessarily have a license, they're waiting for a license, but for whatever reason they decide to start selling cannabis illegally and what's the liability of the landlord? And so there's so many issues. Doesn't that, 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 ele- that immediately negates your ability to qualify for a license in the first place, doesn't it? It does, but sometimes you're prepared to take the Ten or fifteen thousand dollars cash coming in each day, and you know because you risk. get to the point that you just yeah, and and the other thing is is the retail is one thing, but the licensing for the, um, the grow facilities like the is even worse. Like yeah. like or more significant, you're having to essentially build a facility, and which are millions and millions of dollars, and then it has to be reviewed and approved, and and then then they'll give you the license. Maybe <laughs> it's just incredible. Once you've built out a very specialized use in a facility. They tend to be in the middle of nowhere, so they're probably tougher to resell. It's, and there is no established resale market now for these facilities either. It's a, it's a very weird time. I mean, as lenders, uh, we struggle a bit as well. Obviously, it's an, it's an ongoing issue that you're, you've got rents that are outsized. You've got an unproven business model. You know, it's all, all the equations that generally well, and, lenders and, politi- and political are. exposure. I mean, I, can we promise that marijuana will be legal if you know, a different government gets elected? Like, Do we know that that's, that's in fact going to be, be true? Like, I don't know. I haven't heard that... The, the conservatives are deciding to change it or will overturn it. But they, they have said that they will not try and put the genie back in the bottle. They have said that? Okay. Yeah, I believe so. I, th- I think federally... And th- politicians have never lied. <laughs> no. I think federally, I, I think the genie is out of the bottle, as you say. But having said that, I think you know it, it's actually licensed and, and effectively managed on a municipal and provincial level, and that's really where the, the questions are, and that's where the problems arise. If you look at BC, they've been having, um, you know, quote-unquote, illegal retail marijuana sales for you know a very 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 long time and when that people started to try to do that in Ontario and in Toronto and Hamilton in particular 
then you, you essentially had all of these cannabis raids. And so you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know sort of the wave of, at the time, what's going to happen. I had a client who was leasing to a illegal cannabis store, and my client received a, a notice, a, a zoning violation notice for two locations because the municipality said that the sale of cannabis did not fall within the approved zoning because while the zoning permitted retail, it didn't permit retail cannabis. It also didn't permit retail shoes or retail clothes, but they were trying to suggest that it didn't permit retail cannabis. So whether they're right or wrong, you're still having to pay to defend yourself. And on that same vein, actually, I spoke with a gentleman who had a similar situation, a similar tenant, and they also notified his lender about the violation as well. So I guess trying to exert some pressure that way. No question, you know, and and I know that it's been a real issue with particularly some of the big banks deciding like, you know, like, are you on board or you're not on board? Like, did you, like, can you necessarily exclude a, a category or a group of people? Is that fair? Is that reasonable? Yeah, it's a good point. And the other thing is, is there are people who actually use, you know, marijuana for medicinal purposes. And so is that violating their rights? Like, you know, what do you do about that? I actually, I'm kind of digressing or moving slightly. That was one of the topics we came up with because there's been so much pressure put on condominium boards and, and apartments, uh, you know, that people, well, con- the condominium boards before the legislation came in into effect were all going and trying to change their rules and regulations and their bylaws to essentially state specifically that cannabis was a noxious odor and you know, couldn't be smoked in, in the, some of them were trying to do this, that couldn't be smoked in the units and couldn't be smoked within certain number of feet of the, the condominium building, et cetera, like in the common elements. But then you have people who may smoke marijuana for municipal purposes, so that's not fair or reasonable. So then they're having to come up with ways of addressing how those people could actually still do that in their units. And there's been some interesting approaches. Some of them have been that those individuals would have to provide evidence that they are given or on medical marijuana and um, uh, either by certificates or whatever information that they receive uh, from their doctors, and then they would be excluded. But it's a real quagmire. And, and policing that as a condo board, disorganized condo boards typically too, that's, that's a challenge. Yes, and, and also like if you, if you look at some of, the, some of the stuff from the states, and lots of people are giving out these quote-unquote prescriptions for medical marijuana, and I'm not sure that they're necessarily doctors. But it, it doesn't mean that there aren't people who desperately need it. But then we have to also think that the whole air industry of marijuana, it's not simply the, you know, the, the leafy pieces in the in the Ziploc baggie that you know your brother's friend had it's it's lotions and potions and and there's pills and there's oils and and there's all kinds of things and and then what will be coming will be edibles and that's a whole another area and as drinks, well apparently the drinks yeah. and all sorts of other stuff and there's a television show it's i think I believe it's uh, filmed in the states and it's all about cooking with marijuana cooking with cannabis it's incredible it's really interesting it's funny you mentioned um, you know the condo boards are dealing with with it in that regard, trying to put in their bylaws. You've got apartment landlords uh, allowing or disallowing it. Obviously, with industrial, they're worried about the manufacturing, and the cost, and retail, of course, the well, the retailing of it. Each asset class has their own headaches yes. within it. Is there any headaches you can think about an office? That's the office asset class that I can't think of a major issue that they would be trying to contend with in this in this uh, new paradigm. It's funny you say that because um, we were, we literally divided our panel into four, and we we only gave five minutes for office. 
I don't think there are as many issues just because of the fact that now you can't smoke in an office building. And so at the end of the day, it used to be though that uh, some, you weren't supposed to smoke in office building but many buildings facilitated smoking rooms. That's no longer the case. So now the people who are smoking cannabis are standing with the people who are smoking cigarettes. So that's not a problem. Um, and there's really nothing unique about the office needs of the cannabis industry that's any different than any typical office need. So it's not as if, you know, there's anything special. To your point before though, like the industrial or the agricultural production is fundamentally different and it's very hard to transition, you know. So so the type of greenhouse you, you need uh, to have for cannabis production is fundamentally more complex than you need to grow tomatoes. <laughs> But in office, you know, a desk's a desk and space is space. Of course, yeah. And uh, I mean, I can at least speak for First National that financing greenhouses is difficult. Very difficult and very expensive. Yeah, the reality is financing anything connected to, to marijuana is is challenging in one form or fashion. I mean, retail, of course, you've got those challenges, whether it's legal and, you know, what the rents they're paying. You can discount the rents and, you know, because I think in often a lot of these things, because of the revenue that can be generated, you mentioned $15,000 a day. You know, if you're thinking about sort of typical lease payments proportionate to the profit being generated by that use user, by that tenant, that might be $100 per square foot net rent at the end of the day. Of course, from a lending perspective, that's great that you're, you're achieving that rent. I'm not going to use that rent. I'm going to use 25 or 30 bucks. On the industrial side, Adam and I were talking before we, we went live, you know, there's examples of industrial use paying 100 dollars per square foot for the industrial space when the market is five dollars right so it's it's a real challenge to, to lend on the cash flow which you can't effectively and so you're stuck with expectations by these these landlords that hey look at the cash flow I'm generating but then the lenders go well I can't I can't necessarily take that approach like that's wonderful you're achieving it and it's I think it's your and then of course there's the whole other negative connotations it's just you know who is the who are the individuals and is this something that's going to be here for a long term I think there's just a lot of there's a lot of headwinds still. So with all that in mind, do you see it going away? Do you see eventually the real estate community kind of wrapping their heads around this? And as it, you know, we're only a year in or 18 months in. in October of last year. Yeah. So we're a year in. Like, do you think in 10 years from now, this is kind of like use alcohol in the prohibition days? Like, it's just one of those things where eventually it just becomes, yeah, I love having marijuana tenants because they're certain and they've got great cash flow and I'll give them the benefit of the higher rents. Like, do you see it going that far? I do. Not the last part about giving the benefit of the higher rents. I think, I don't know if it's five years or 10 years, but there's no question that once the ability to actually sell as much marijuana is is being produced, then I think everything's going to level out. I mean, I think we have to remember that right now we have much more production than they have the ability to sell. And everything's been based on expectations, as you rightly pointed out. Would you just look at the stock market, the same thing with the, the stock prices. It's very similar. And so when you're looking at the pricing of the real estate, I think it'll level out once the market opens up. And that's, I think, what happened in, in BC, and that'll happen in Ontario. So it has happened in BC, you believe, or more or less? More or less. So if, if a client uh, came to you now and said, I've got an offer on the table to lease out a portion of my retail building, my industrial building, to a cannabis tenant, would you say proceed with caution? Would you say jump right into it? You're an amazing rent. Would you say run from it? You know, where would your legal advice, what, what spectrum would you be in? Definitely proceed with caution. I think that you have to find out, there's so many questions, um, due diligence, you have to find out where they're at in terms of licensing they've applied for, licensing they've received. You have to look at what the nature of the use is. 
you have to, I mean, you just talked about three different things. So they're all different. Like there's different licenses for every one of them. There's a, there's a licensing to produce it, uh, to grow it. There's a license to how they're producing it, license to sell at retail. And then we don't, don't even know where the licensing is going to go in terms of what I, I said before about the lotions and potions and edibles and oils and all that kind of stuff. So 100% proceed with caution. But what you are seeing is that big, big business is involved in it. And that's where I think landlords are starting to get some comfort. Now, there's been some restrictions. They say that there's been a restriction on the ability of the big business to actually get the licenses to sell. And, and the government has sort of created a division there. I think at some point that's going to go away. And then you're going to be like, in any industry, the big business will completely take over. What do you, sorry, what do you mean by that? Can you elaborate on that kind of where they've created that division? That like the tweeds aren't allowed to get a license to sell. Mm, right. So they can have the retail license, but but what you see is an, in everything else, they're buying everything. And it's sort of like any kind of integrated industry is, you know, like, and I look at Shell as an example. It was a fully integrated company. So you have primary, secondary, and tertiary business. Your primary is, is the drilling of the oil here. It's the production of the cannabis. Secondary is the refining the oil and to put it into gas or into you know oil that goes into your car. In cannabis, it's producing the cannabis you smoke, oils, as I said, lotions and potions and edibles. And then the, the tertiary is the retail component, and, and in cannabis, it's selling it through the stores. But not only that, remember, there's an entire industry that's now surrounded all the cannabis paraphernalia. And everything from... Um, you know, the type of uh, utensils you use to smoke it, to, to vape it, to other ways of, of using it. And then also, like... Um, the experience of smoking weed and just the vibe that that comes with it and all that kind of stuff too, right? Hundred, like, there's just so many things. So it's an incredible business. And, and like I said, there's all of these. Like, look at Tokyo Smoke. Um, so Tokyo Smoke was essentially a business that was built and selling all... Um, uh, weed paraphernalia, a super, super high end. Like you could get a grinder, it was like two or three or $400 and it was, I don't know, made out of bone or, you know, something else. Like it, it's just incredible. Like, uh, and, and people now, and that's another thing is, is it's not just the 16 year olds in high school are smoking or the university dropout, so to speak. It's it's everybody. It's it's your mother, your brother, your cousin, your uncle, you know, your maybe even your grandmother. Everybody's smoking it or using it or in some way, shape or form. And so, when you think about that, it's sort of like shoes. Everybody needs a pair of shoes. In this case, and whether it's a pair of running shoes, it's a pair of loafers, it's a pair of high heels, it's a pair of, of good solid shoes to walk you know, for an older person. So, and, and cannabis is really that thing. It, it's something for everyone. It's really interesting. Yeah, very, very interesting. And, and I love the concept that we're one year into this growth of this industry. That's going to take some time to mature, clearly. Yeah, Susan, I want to thank you for your time today and your expertise in what is an exciting new arena of commercial real estate. I want to thank First National for powering the podcast. And I want to thank Informa for hosting us here today at the Real Trends Conference. Thanks again, Susan. Thank you, gentlemen. Really thank enjoyed you. it. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.